Hello. Oh, Mountain Dew. Wow, that is. I haven't had that in a while. <laughs> that is some sugar. Lindsay just got a sugar shock to her system. Straight to the brain. <laughs> well, since we've mentioned Mountain Dew, before we get into this, uh, this episode is not sponsored by Mountain Dew, but Officially. we're going to yet. <laughs> I would take their money. Yeah, me too. Mountain <laughs> Dew. Also, Mucho Burrito, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Mucho Burrito loves Kevin. I'm not sure if anyone saw that on Twitter, but... They liked our Kevin post of him stealing Lindsay's burrito from our last recording session. For the record, if you're not following us on Twitter, it's at PanHistoriaPod. You should probably do that. Go do that right now. Anyways, I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. <laughs> Welcome back to PanHistoria. Uh, Mountain Dew, please give us free stuff. I, uh, anyway, yeah. so today... Free, free burritos from Mucho? I'd, I'd, I'd take that. Me too. Anyway. And free Mountain Dew. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> Oh my God, can you imagine what we're going to be like when we actually do get sponsors? That's going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to they're gonna sponsor us and be like, what the hell did we do? <laughs> I'm going to regret every penny they spend. Pretty much. Or they won't. Anyway, we should probably get on Yeah, this. we should, yeah. Today we're talking about... The Velvet Revolution, which mm. is different than uh, the Velvet Underground. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys were listening, those of you who were listening last week, or last week, last episode... You can tell the sugar is really fucking us up. Yeah. I mentioned that the dissolution of Czechoslovakia was very amicable. And the way I described it was a married couple realizing they didn't work well as a married couple. And so they divorced on good terms, but that made the relationship stronger. I'm hopefully not making a lot of Czechs and Slovaks angry right now. But as far as I know, they actually do have no issues with each other whatsoever not from my general understanding yeah of the situation there's not a lot of animosity no Uh, and again it just made the relationship stronger so definitely at least least it didn't end in fiery violence like yugoslavia yeah exactly that's really the main win here which was a big concern but which we will learn throughout this episode but for those of you who don't know and i don't know how you would know czechoslovakia was a union between czech republic and slovakia that lasted well throughout the 20th century up until the near the very end it's also very fun to say czechoslovakia it is fun also really is not great for your tongue at times either it's hard to say sometimes <laughs> i had a i had a teacher in high school that just like could not say it oh really she also really couldn't say sarajevo she always pronounced the j sarajevo yeah Ugh. wanted to die it was terrible anyway yeah so czechoslovakia communist country after world war ii the communist party of czechoslovakia which the the czech abbreviation is ksc and i'm going to be saying that because it's a lot easier <laughs> um was in a generally favorable position It saw its membership grow from about 40,000 in 1945 to about 1.35 million in 1948, so fairly substantial growth. The Soviets viewed the country as a strategic prize as it bordered West Germany and boasted uranium deposits. So the Soviets were into the idea of the communists taking over. (laughs) Party leader Clement Gottwald insisted that the next goal would be to carry out a thorough democratic national revolution, thereby linking the party to the Czechoslovak democratic tradition and to Czech nationalism by capitalizing on the intense anti-German sentiments of the time. No surprise there. Didn't really love Germans after the war. Uh, During this post-war period, though, the party worked with other parties in a coalition called the National Front. And the communists at least kept up an appearance of being willing to work within the system. Kind of an if you can't beat them, join them type thing. It's a little more nefarious in certain ways, I guess, but anyway. 
they tried. But as a result of this, the KSC actually ended up winning 38% of the vote in the 1946 election, which was the best ever performance by a European Communist Party in a free election, and was far more than the 22% won by their Hungarian counterparts the following year uh, in the only free and fair post-war election in the Soviet era of the area of influence. President Edvard Benes invited Gottwald to be his prime minister. While Benes was not a communist himself, he was amenable to working with the Soviets and hoped for restraint by the Allied powers. The government still had a non-communist majority, but the KSC had initial control over the police and armed forces, which seems kind of dangerous to give to the communists. Uh, <laughs> and they came to dominate other key industries, surprise, surprise, such as those dealing with propaganda, education, social welfare, and agriculture, and they soon took over the civil service. Again, okay, maybe a little dicey. Anyways, by 1947, though, they had alienated an entire block of potential voters. Uh, the police, which were led by Vlaklav Nozick, were acutely offensive to many citizens because they were, you know, beating everyone up. Farmers objected to, t objected to talks of collectivization, and some workers were angry at communist demands that they increase output without being given higher wages. Shocking. The general expectation was that the communists would lose pretty soundly in the May 1948 elections, and the communists also knew that. During the Common Forum meeting, which if you remember from our Yugoslav episodes, Common Forum was the... So, or the sort of communist council of the world. So during their meeting in September of 1947, and Andrei Zhdanov, a communist party of the Soviet Union leader, observed that Soviet victory had helped, quote, achieve the complete victory of the working class over the bourgeoisie in every Eastern European land except Czechoslovakia, where the power contest still remains undecided. He was implying fairly clearly that the KSC should be accelerating its own efforts to take complete power, with that notion being reinforced during the Prague Spring when party archives were opened and showed that Stalin gave up the whole idea of a parliamentary path for Czechoslovakia when the communist parties of France and Italy stumbled in 1947 and 1948. So Stalin wasn't an idiot. He saw that communists were probably never going to be democratically elected, so seize power. Pretty on brand for Stalin. Dict yeah. Dictator's going to dictate. <laughs> <laughs> um, the KSC's second-in-command was Rudolf Slansky, and he attended the meeting. He returned to Prague with a plan for the final seizure of power. He remarked, quote, As in international fields, we have gone on the offensive on the domestic front as well. The KSC pursued a two-pronged strategy. It knew it had to maintain a front of working within the electoral political system, and it was aware that a revolutionary coup wasn't acceptable. So they had to try and gain an absolute majority, which they wanted to do during the 1948 elections, but the fracturing of the left-wing coalition made that pretty unrealistic, and that pushed the party towards extra-parliamentary action. So the organization of, quote, spontaneous demonstrations to, quote, express the will of the people and continuous visits to parliament by workers' delegations were meant to ensure that, quote, the mobilization of the masses. So, you know, too long didn't read. They faked the beginnings of our evolution. Um, <laughs> during the, they pretty much staged it. So during the 19, winter of 1947-1948, both in the cabinet and in parliament, tensions began to rise between the communists and their opponents. And this ended up le leading to pretty bitter conflict, as it seems to have in all cases of this happening. Uh, matters came to a head in February 1948 when Nozick Ill illegally extended his powers by attempting to purge remaining non-communists in the National Police Force. This is why you don't give the police the communists. <laughs> the security apparatus and police were being transformed into instruments of the KSC and consequently endangering basic, civ basic civic freedoms. On February 12th, the non-communists in cabinet demanded punishment for the offending communists in the government and an end to their supposed subversion. Nozick, backed by Gottwald, refused to yield. 
He and his fellow communists threatened to use force and in order to avoid defeat in parliament, mobilized groups of their supporters in the country. On February 21st, 12 non-communist ministers resigned in protest after Nozick refused to reinstate eight non-communist senior police officers, despite a majority of the vote of the cabinet being in favor of doing so. Most of the other ministers, they stayed in their posts, but some really made, most of them really made no secret that they supported the communists. The non-communists assumed that Benners would refuse to accept their resignations, keeping them in a caretaker government and in the process embarrassing the communists in the hopes that they would yield. Unfortunately for them, Benaz decided otherwise and decided to stay neutral over the issue because he feared that the KSC would foment an insurrection and he also really didn't want to give the Red Army a pretext for invading the country to restore order, so he decided to keep his mouth shut. He originally had insisted that no government, sorry, no new government would be formed, which did not include ministers from the non-communist parties, but due to a general atmosphere of tension and massive communist-led protests, Benaz relented on that front a little bit. And as a result, there's actually some debate about whether or not everything would be different if he hadn't relented. Everyone sees this as basically the moment where the communists took power. So uh, some feel that the communists wouldn't have been able to actually form a government if Benes had held his line, trying to, you know, like non-communists had to be involved. But unfortunately, he didn't. And the non-communists did see this sort of breaking of power as an opportunity. They knew they would defeat the communists in the election. And as a result, they needed to move quickly before the communists had total control over the police. But at the same time, they uh, seemed to behave like nothing had changed since 1939, and then this was exactly like every other crisis they'd ever dealt with. So basically, they were dumb and didn't realize that the communists were mobilizing from below to take complete power. They had an, op- they had an opportunity to like really you know, solidify their power and instead did nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty questionable on their part. Anyway, uh, Soviet Deputy Minister Valerian Zorin, who served as ambassador to Czechoslovakia from 1945 to 1947, returned to Prague to help with the final arrangements for the coup. Armed militia took over Prague, more communist demonstrations were mounted, and an anti-communist student demonstration was broken up. The ministries of the non-communist ministers were occupied, civil servants dismissed, and the ministers prevented from entering their own ministries. The army, under the direction of Defense Minister Ludwig Svoboda, was confined to barracks and did not interfere. Svoboda was a nonpartisan, but it helped facilitate the infiltration of communists into the officer corps, so... Meh. <laughs> kind of involved, kind of not. Communist action committees and trade union militias were quickly set up, armed and sent into the streets, as well as being prepared to carry through a purge of anti-communists. Gottwald threatened a general strike unless Benes agreed to form a new, gov- a new communist-dominated government. Zorin offered the services of the Red Army, but the KSC declined the offer, as Gottwald believed that the threat of violence combined with heavy political pressure would be enough to force Benes to surrender, and he didn't really want the optics of the Red Army showing up. Wouldn't really look good. The Soviets weren't necessarily popular amongst the Czech people, and so he kind of needed to not offend everybody. <laughs> On February 25th, 1948, Benes did finally capitulate. He feared civil war and Soviet intervention, and accepted the resignations of non-communist ministers and appointed a new government in accordance with KSC demands. Gottwald continued as prime minister of a government dominated by communists and pro-Moscow Social Democrats. Social Democrats' leader was named Fierlinger, who was a, and he was a proponent of closer ties with the communists for some time and openly sided with the communists during this dispute. Following the coup, the communists moved quickly to consolidate their power. Thousands of people were fired and hundreds were arrested. Thousands of people fled to avoid living under communism, ultimately, just as what happened in uh, East Germany. 
the National Assembly, freely elected two years earlier, quickly fell into line and gave Gottwald's revamped government a vote of confidence in March. The 230 to zero result was unanimous, although nine MPs did resign following the coup. So, assume, you can assume those nine MPs were going to vote against. Uh, <clears throat> either way, still a pretty resounding victory. On May 9th, the new constitution was approved by Parliament. Though it declared Czechoslovakia a people's democracy under the leadership of the KSC, it was not a completely communist document. However, it was close enough to the Soviet model that Benes refused to sign it. At the May, <clears throat> May 30th elections, voters were presented with a single list from the National Front, which officially won 89.2% of the vote. Within the National Front list, the communists had an absolute majority of 214 seats, 160 for the main party, and 54 for the Slovak branch. Basically, how Czech government works, or how the Czechoslovak government worked, was most of the power was in Prague, and Slo Slovakia basically just had branches of things. And they kind of had their own government, but eh, not really. Yeah, so this majority actually ended up growing, too, once the Social Democrats merged with the communists later on. Benes eventually resigned on June 2nd, and Gottwald succeeded him 12 days later. Benes actually died the following September, which brought a symbolic close to the sequence of events and also a symbolic close to the end of democracy. <laughs> he was buried before an enormous and silent throng who had come to mourn the passing of both the popular leader and the democracy that he represented. Ultimately, Czechoslovakia remained a communist country until the Velvet Revolution, which is why we're here. So, <laughs> you know, continuing on. <laughs> right. Okay. So... Uh, an important figure to know about at this point is a man named Alexander Dubček of Slovakia. He is a veteran of the Second World War and a member of the resistance against the Slovak Republic puppet state that was basically run by Nazi Germany. After the war, he became a member of the Slovak branch of the KSC, and he was a member of the National Assembly from 1951 to 1955. He graduated from Moscow Political College in 1958, he joined the Central Committee of the KSC the same year and became a member of the Presidium around 1962 before returning to the federal parliament between 1960 and 1968. He was a pretty powerful figure and he rose in, in Czechoslovakia and he rose pretty quickly. During a power struggle in the Slovak branch of the KSC, Dubček and fellow moderates gained control of the branch in 1963 with Dubček as first secretary. Dubček began the process of political liberalization within Slovakia itself after the previous Stalinist leaders put down notions of Slovak self-determination during the 1950s. The committee organized events to advance the Slovak identity, which included celebrations and anniversaries of dates and figures important to Slovakia. The reform made Slovakia more politically liberal than the Czech Republic. So yeah, just imagine, hey, we're the same country, but one side is more liberated than the other. In May 1968, Marxists planned a conference intended to celebrate and discuss the life of Franz Kafka. While this seems insignificant, Kafka's works were highly criticized by the communist Czechoslovak government and I think were actually banned for a fair bit of time, which is what they tend to do. Yeah, common. The conference led to the, cease, to the easing of censorship, not just in Czechoslovakia, but in other Eastern blocs as well, since representatives from the other countries were invited to attend. The Soviets, however, did not attend big surprise. They weren't too happy about this. 
Kafka became a national symbol for artists and intellectuals in Czechoslovakia advocating for freedom. Dubček worked to create a new form of socialism for Czechoslovakia. During the 20th anniversary celebration of the victorious February, which is the anniversary of the communist coup that Lindsay just spoke about, Dubček announced his intentions to make the party less heavy-handed on society, quote, to build an advanced socialist society on sound economic foundations, a socialism that corresponds to the historical democratic traditions of Czechoslovakia in accordance with the experience of other communist parties, end quote. This policy became known as a socialism with a human face, meant to bring mild democratization to Czechoslovakia and some liberal reforms to the country's politics. So it's definitely a very, I would say it's more traditional socialism as opposed to Soviet yeah. socialism. <clears throat> I don't know if, I mean, not that many of the republics, like Soviet republics, actually really had true Soviet socialism, I don't think. Well, they had like, true Soviet socialism, but not really yeah, true, socialism. true socialism. But I yeah. mean, like a lot of them still had, they were a lot, still kind of more unique than the Soviet, like they were unique to themselves versus the Soviet Union. Like there was differences for sure. Yeah. I think the like the countries like Belarus and like Bulgaria, especially Belarus though, were like a lot, and Ukraine were like a lot more similar to the Soviet, like to the Soviet Union specifically. But like, I think like Czechoslovakia, Estonia, Lithuania, like those countries were a little different. Yeah, for sure. Similar enough, but yeah, they're well, all similar enough in regime, but like, I mean, I could have mild differences. I mean, I could have talked about the the Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia at the end of this episode, but honestly, there's so much about them that they deserve their own. It was episode. actually cool when I went to Estonia. Random sidebar: When I went to Estonia, I've been there four times, but anyway, the last time I was there, I did a a walking tour in uh, Tallinn. Tallinn's one of my favorite cities on the planet, by the way. It's really cool. And uh, university students do these free tours, and they just work for tips. And it was super interesting talking about, like, because in Tallinn, you can see, like, such a range of history because there's old Tallinn, which is one of the, you know, these old, it's like old medieval cities. And then, you know, you can really see all the marks of communism. And it was super interesting talking about, and he was talking about just, like, um, how Estonians used to trade vinyl records and, like, how they subverted the the authorities and stuff like that and how communism came to an end in Estonia. It was really interesting. And yeah, they do definitely the Baltics almost they just, the Baltics are a totally different like situation than you know any of the others. Yeah, yeah. They're all different. I mean they're all communists and part of the Eastern Bloc, but there's way more nuance and difference than I think people actually understand. Yeah. And tangent over oppression, yeah. Thank you for coming for my thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> So during the spring, the government began what is known as the Action Program, a series of expansions of individual liberties and economic reforms to move the country towards socialism as opposed to the Soviet doctrine. So definitely more towards the moderate side than to the far left. The course of action was the full lifting of censorship on March 8, 1968. In April, freedom of the press, speech, and movement were eased, and economics were shifted to focus on consumer goods. Furthermore, discussions of allowing a multi-party government were also underway. The official action on April 5th stated, quote, Socialism cannot mean only liberation of the working people from the dominance of exploring class relations, but must make more provisions for a fuller life of the personality than any bourgeois democracy, end quote. 
The Social Democratic wing of the KSC broke away and began the creation of a separate party in June. This outraged the hardliners who demanded Dubček take action to suppress their move. However, he refused and reaffirmed his role as leader to shut them up. <laughs> what broke the Soviet camel's back was the plan to reform Czechoslovakia's economy into a mixed format in order to combat the decline of their export competitiveness. That was a major problem in the Eastern Bloc that we should probably mention is that a lot of their attempts to put on this like fixed economy. Did not work. No, it really failed in Hungary. It was not working somewhat. It obviously didn't work very much in East Germany. I mean, it really barely worked in the Soviet Union. I think the only thing that buoyed it in the Soviet Union was the fact that they just were so much larger and had resources. Yeah. I mean, like most of these countries don't have any of their own real resources. All of their resources are like commodities that they have to rely on selling. Which is tough when you are being, when the rest of the world's in a market economy, yeah. <laughs> a free market well, economy. The other thing is like um, Soviet Union, well, Russia, even Russia today, yeah. is fucking huge. Well, yeah. So like, it's easier to hide all of the places that are not doing so well. Also that, yeah. Yeah. Whereas like in countries like Czechoslovakia or East Germany, mm-hmm. Hungary, where it's smaller and like it places are the population's more condensed. Yeah, and places are easier to get to, and it's easier to see how shitty things are like in the yeah. rural areas. Yeah, it, it's you're not really hiding well, success. And the thing is too, is that those countries in the rural areas, especially, we're just generally more developed anyways because they're easier to get to. Yeah. So like you're going to notice a decline or a difference in your style of life. Whereas I think in the Soviet Union, to be honest, in a lot of really remote places, like life hasn't changed a ton kind of over the years. Well, no, that's my point. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's but just like, easier it just, to hide, for them to hide for it. For a lot of people, it's just like not a, it's a non-factor. They show like Moscow, St. Petersburg and Volgograd as like, you know, the successful places in the country. But I mean, you kind of go outside of there and... Well, it's still the same because I've been there. And, like, it's definitely the same when you're in Moscow. It's, like, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, it's very different. But when you drive through the middle, because we drove between, it's definitely a very different country. Right, that, but that's my, that's oh, my I know, point. I know, I'm agreeing. I'm just saying it's still like that. And that's not even talking about, like, the places in Siberia. No. So, um, but, yeah, it's so it was just a lot harder for, like, the Czech, Czech government to kind of hide it. But as, like, with Jubczyk, he wasn't trying to hide it. He was trying to fix it. The reforms saw some support with Hungary under Janos Kadar, expressing welcome to Dubček's taking of office and the reforms. Yeah, this was around the time that Hungary was like was still kind of coming out of its 1956 revolution. Actually, it was like right after this. It was quite interesting to see the leader of Hungary who was insulted after that happened to be praising Dubček. Leonid Brezhnev, the unibrow leader of, probably not the only one, but the only one that I know of, of the Soviet Union, was particularly troubled by the events unfolding, seeing it as a weakening in the communist hold on Eastern Europe, which I say, duh. Obviously. (laughs) Brezhnev was kind of the king of Captain Obvious. (laughs) A lot of this happened on his watch, like, I mean, all of it did really, but... We'll talk about Brezhnev in future episodes, but like Brezhnev is really when you talk about the fall of communism, like it really starts and pretty much ends with Brezhnev because he was leader for a long time and the Soviet Union really stagnated. And uh, yeah. During a meeting in Dresden on March 23rd, representatives from the USSR, Hungary, Poland, Bulgaria and the GDR interrogated the Czechoslovak delegates over the upcoming reforms. 
The least concern there were the Polish and Hungarian dignitaries who did not bring it up or basically hold them up against the wall, demanding an explanation. And they were mostly welcoming of it. In a desperate move, the Soviets attempted to negotiate with Dubček in order to either limit the reforms or put an end to them entirely. Eventually, Brezhnev offered a compromise. The KSC would declare renewed support for the Warsaw Pact and to restrict anti-socialist attitudes and demonstrations in exchange for the Soviet withdrawal of the Soviet troops within Czechoslovakia. In Bratislava, the members signed a declaration swearing loyalty to Marxism-Leninism and proletarian internationalism and the right for Soviet intervention in the event any Warsaw Pact country implement what is what they called a, quote, bourgeois system, end okay. quote. However, the Soviets were not fully happy with the terms of the agreement and secretly devised a plan for military intervention against Czechoslovakia. On the night of August 20th and 21st, the USSR, Poland, Hungary, and Bulgaria invaded Czechoslovakia with 200,000 combined troops and 2,000 tanks. Interestingly enough, the two countries that refused to join were Romania and Albania, even though they were requested to supply troops. Unfortunately, the Czechoslovak forces were completely unprepared and overwhelmed. Czechoslovak citizens began acts of nonviolent resistance. They often argued with invading troops, but these were spun in propaganda as Czechoslovak citizens having friendly conversations with the invading forces. So basically, the Soviet press would take pictures of these arguments happening and uh, spin it that they were welcoming the Soviet troops and whatnot. So those who were heading the what is most commonly known as the Prague Spring told citizens not to engage with Soviets in any way, shape, or form. Mass protests entered the streets, forcing Brezhnev to abandon plans to remove Dubček from power. It was agreed he would remain first secretary, but all plans for liberalization would be abandoned, and therefore the Prague Spring ended there. Could have been a much worse situation in a lot of ways. A lot more people could have died, like in 1956, but kind of got lucky because... Dubček was a very, was not a hard man. He was a soft, more soft, which is not a bad thing, but he just wasn't prepared to deal militarily with the matter, especially against 200,000 combined troops and tanks. Romania's Ceausescu expressed disappointment for the invasion in a speech soon after. Protesters gathered in Red Square on August 25th, but were arrested for anti-Soviet speech. It always, it shocks me that Ceausescu of all people called him out. Like you'll learn at the end of this year in our last episode of the year that uh, Ceausescu was not a good guy. (laughs) You don't say. Yeah, he was, he was a piece of shit. Furthermore, the most outraged country by the invasion was Albania and the invasion actually prompted Albania to leave the Warsaw Pact in September. Albania is a special, special case in terms of communist countries. I feel like Albania, it's unfortunately a little down the list. Sorry, Albania, we love you, but we'll get there. It is a very special topic. I'll put it that way. You'll find out. We'll we'll get there eventually. Dissent lasted months after the evasion. Student Jan Palach committed self-immolation in Wenceslas Square in Prague on January 16, 1969, calling for an end to the suppression of free speech. 
He died three days later. Dubček was replaced by Gustav Huzak on April 17th, and he returned to private life, which is fairly lucky for someone in his who did what he did to be allowed to just quietly resign and return to his private life. Yeah. Especially when you cross the Soviet Union. I mean, even though it, does, it sounds like he didn't do anything that bad, but for the Soviets, like that's too much for the Soviets. And uh, Brezhnev wasn't a very good man, I don't, I would say. He's yeah. pretty brutal. Yeah. yeah. Huzak began a process known as normalization, which is a little eerie sounding in terms of communism. A little bit. Huzak began, or this would last the next two decades, pretty much for the remainder of Czechoslovakia's existence. Nearly all reforms passed during the Prague Spring were reversed with censorship reinstated on the press and the arts. Huzak also purged the liberal wing of the KSC and most of those ministers were removed from the party. Power was once again centralized to the state run solely by the KSC and all decisions falling to the Central Committee. You can probably imagine that this caused quite a bit of a stir in Slovakia. Those in charge recognized the threat to their power were reformists from the intelligentsia community. Beginning in May 1969, hundreds of Czech and Slovak journalists published the Into Our Ranks Declaration, in which they criticized the press reforms from the previous year. A large number of newspapers were shut down, and those who remained ran under a strict writing criteria. Basically, you can all you have to submit what you're writing to a probably to the directly to the central committee for approval, which I don't think I need to explain. That sucks. Yeah. The highest amount of dissent was amongst the youth, as they were inspired by Palacha's suicide. He basically became a martyr for political reform in Czechoslovakia for the next two decades. On August 21st, people gathered at the statue of Wenceslas, demanding an end to Soviet dominance. Members of the Czech militia descended on the scene and began the process of clearing the crowd. This resulted in a riot with protesters clashing with the militia. The latter were better equipped and pounded the protesters with water cannons and other anti-riot weapons, probably batons. A state of emergency was announced and order was soon restored. Following this incident, many of those in dissent lost their will to continue rebelling, especially considering the main leaders of the Prague Spring, Spring had seemingly given up. So that was the main thing. Is like the reason why there wasn't a lot of huge dissent after this is just people basically gave up. And were like, nothing's going to change. Everything we've tried to do hasn't worked. We've been beaten back. Those we looked up to have given up. There's no point. So unlike in places like East Germany or the Soviet Union, where, I don't know, the members of the Stasi were going into your house and rearranging your furniture or sending your wife a dildo, that wasn't that kind of shit wasn't happening in Czechoslovakia. Yeah, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should probably go back and listen to the last episode. <laughs> it's a great story. I just realized. This led to a decades-long endemic of political apathy in the country, with very few willing to go up against the government simply due to the belief they could not make a difference. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. (laughs) 
Many people focused on their private lives instead of the bigger picture, which, again, sounds very familiar. Yeah, don't say. Yeah. Normalization continued with Huzak improving relations with the fellow Warsaw Pact members through a series of interblock visits, as well as shifting the majority of its economic imports and exports to socialist countries. In 1971, at the 14th Party Congress, Huzak declared normalization to be succeeding and his belief Czechoslovakia was on its way to to rising to a higher form of socialism, which sounds very cult-esque. Love it. All that would need to change is that we're rising to another form of existence. Add some Kool-Aid. And... Yeah. Unlike the other bloc countries, Huzak adopted a method commonly referred to as, quote, reluctant terror. In short, it isn't full-on Stalinism, but still far from liberal the liberal days of the Prague Spring. The regime worked to comply with the Soviets while using only the slightest repression. These included the loss of jobs or demotion, denial of travel requests, rejection for employment and education opportunities, and denial of housing were, co- were common methods. However, Huzak's methods became more oppressive over the years during his leadership. Huzak also acquired a number of consumer gains in alternative to gaining personal freedoms. Czechoslovakia saw economic growth through the beginning of the mid-1970s, as well as an increase in availability of personal assets. Nonetheless, the Czechoslovak economy went stagnant in the late 70s, along with, you know, every single other Eastern Bloc country. This caused discontent with the populace once again. This was known as the Brezhnev's stagnation. Oh, Brezhnev. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's like I I explained this a bit later, but when you kind of have a fixed income, but increasing prices... Yeah, the numbers just eventually don't make any sense. Yeah, well, it basically means you can't afford to buy anything. Yeah. Sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> it sure does. But yeah, so that yeah, that's basically the gist of what was going on. So basically, stagnation stagnation is is that in terms of economics, it means that the economy is not moving forward and kind of at a standstill, which. May you may think sounds good, but it actually isn't because it does. It means that it's not catching up to the rest of the world. Yeah, more or less. Well, it just yeah means nothing is continuing to grow, and like economies rely on continued growth because of a variety of, of factors. But I mean, population. There's con- countries continue to grow, and so if the population grows and the economy continues to stagnate, if you know things around you are changing and your economy is not changing. You're it's, not going to get anywhere far. It's not good. You're not getting anywhere fast. <laughs> it's really not good. No. Yeah. And like what inflation is, is when prices keep going up and up and up. But the value of the currency really isn't. Yeah. So, and you ha- and people have to raise prices in order to keep up. And then there's also something I remember learning about called stagflation, mm. which is when uh, the economy is stagnant, but inflation is still re- skyrocketing. Which is what happened primarily in the Eastern Bloc, was prices continued to rise in the rest of the world. Because, I mean, the thing with, so the, the, the ultimate problem that they face is that it's fixed economies work great when you're controlling all of the prices. So that's fine inside your own country. But when the rest of the world who you're competing with and still needing to rely on in terms of like trade and resources, I mean, the Soviet Union still had to sell its resources outside of the Soviet Union to make money. 
um, is that you're dealing with a market economy, which you can't control the price. And so when you need to buy something from someone else, it's going to cost a lot more money. Yeah. And you don't have it because <laughs> you're... Yeah, your economy is not growing like the rest of them. So prices continue to rise and you're like not prepared to handle it. Yeah. I mean, basically... That was a terrible description of economics. But. It was a good one. But with inflation, essentially, if you ever wonder why printing more money to fix the economy is a bad idea, it's because it causes inflation really bad. Makes it go faster. Yeah. Because yeah. basically, when everyone has more money, then everyone else's... Like the producers' main thing is they're going to raise prices because more people want that thing or more people are able to buy that thing. This is a terrible description of it as well, but basically think of it. If everyone has more money and everyone like goes by, goes and buys a sports car, then there's not going to be enough sports cars to go around. So the natural thing to do is raise the price of a sports car. Mm-hmm. That's what inflation is. And if you continue making more sports cars, then the value of the sports car is going to go down. Yeah. I mean, the worst case of inflation was in Hungary during the, I believe the 30s, where basically money was just, was so worthless, people were just throwing it out on the streets. Didn't get that bad in Czechoslovakia or anything like that, but it was, I mean, inflation wasn't the problem, it was stagnation. And that's kind of the problem when you only focus on exporting to a certain group of states. But yeah, yeah. so anyway. So it's a... Ah. Kevin, no. Kevin almost fell off the table. The dew is hitting him, too. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, a common thread in, in all not free places. And, I mean, it's a common thread in every country. There's always going to be dissent to government. The difference is that in free countries, it's not really... A th- it's it's a thing, but it's it's recognized and it's fine. In these countries, it's, you know, illegal. So... One group in Czechoslovakia, which was really instrumental in all of this, was called Charter 77. So they were considered a civic group, not so much a political group. Their definition's a bit loose, but they existed from 1976 to 1992. And they actually named themselves after the document Charter 77, which was signed in January 1977. The first signatures were actually collected in December 1976, though, which was an ode to the members of the music group Plastic People of the Universe that um, their members had been arrested in that in December. So what was really common was for like, so rock music, pop, pop culture in all of these places was ultimately really heavily controlled as with everything else. And so there was like, you know, state accepted actors and musicians, etc. And then there was other people. And what was really common is for a lot of these other music groups, especially to also double as political groups because they wanted their freedom to create. But it was also kind of a way to not really be an official opposition political group. So a lot of them kind of had loose ties to all of those things as well. So the charter was officially published on January 6th, 1977, uh, along with the names of the first 242 signatories. The makeup of those signatories was was diverse, representing people of all occupations, political viewpoints, and religions. Uh, Vaclav Havel, Ludwig Vakulik, and Pavel Landowski were detained while trying to bring the charter to the Federal Assembly of the Czechoslovak government, and the original document was confiscated. Vaclav Havel is really instrumental, and he's going to come up a lot in this this story. He's actually, sorry, he's actually a lot more come back into prominence lately because he was a big supporter of the environmentalist movement. Mm -hmm. So now he's actually really starting to... 
which is really up. but for different reasons than like coming full was, circle yeah it's he's more praised today for different reasons than yeah i think he really should be praised fair enough yeah so copies of the document did circulate amongst dissident circles which was difficult because ultimately the press was controlled by the state so the only way they could they could uh, share documents was paper like newspapers basically like magazines really old school methods but eventually uh, actually on january 7th the document was published in several western newspapers including le monde and the new york times it was transmitted to czechoslovakia by banned radio stations such as radio free europe and voice of america uh, radio free europe will also come up a fair bit in this season, uh, they're a radio station funded by Radio Liberty, which is an American pro-democracy radio station. And they operated in Eastern Europe as a way to uh, transmit like the real news of what was happening in those countries. So things that the government didn't want you to know, basically. Uh, and I mean, obviously, you can take some of it with a grain of salt. It's a little bit slanted because they're obviously a pro-democracy, anti-communist group. But they at least were trying to present the news in a... And they still exist. Um, I actually still follow them. They do a lot of really good work in like in Eurasia, so like in Turkmenistan and Kyrgyzstan and those countries where in Armenia, Azerbaijan, even in Russia still because the press is heavily censored. So they still do good work. But anyway, they were heavily involved in the takedown of communism. They were a way for a lot of people to get those messages because the government sure shit wasn't going to show it. <laughs> um so Charter 77 criticized the government for failing to implement human rights provisions of a number of documents that it had signed, including the 1960 Constitution of Czechoslovakia, the final act of the 1975 Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, and the 1966 United Nations Covenants on Political, Civil, Civil Economic, and Cultural Rights. The document also described the signatories as a loose, or a quote, loose, informal, and open association of people united by the will to strive individually and collectively for respect in human and civil rights in our country and throughout the world. It emphasized that Charter 77 is not an organization, has no statutes or permanent organs, and, quote, does not form the basis of, for any oppositional political activity. This last stipulation was really important, as it was an effort to, by the group to stay within the bounds of the law, which prohibited organized opposition. Naturally, the government reacted harshly. They didn't love this. The official press release described the manifesto as, quote, an anti-state, anti-socialist, and demagogic abusive piece of writing. And individual signatories were variously described as traitors and renegades, a loyal servant and agent of imperialism, a bankrupt politician, and an international adventurer. I kind of want international adventurer to be my new title. That'd be a dream <laughs> title. Don't really see how that's an insult. Anyway. The document was considered an illegal document, and the full text was never published in the official press. However, an official group of artists and writers was mobilized into an anti-charter movement, which included Czechoslovakia's foremost singer Karel Gott and prominent comedic writer Jan Verich, who later claimed that he had no idea what, was actually, he, what he was actually signing when he signed the anti. <laughs> the gun, as it did, of course, retaliated. Their methods were diverse, but included dismissal from work, denial of educational opportunities for their children, suspension of driver's, li suspension of driver's licenses, forced exile, loss of citizenship, and detention, trial, and imprisonment. Many members of the Charter were also forced to collaborate with the Communist Secret Servants, the STB. The treatment of the signatories did prompt the creation of a group in April of 1978 called the Committee for the Defense of the Unjustly Prosecuted. The Czech abbreviation is VONS, or VONS to publicize the fate of those associated with the Charter. 
In October 1979, six leaders of this group, including Václav Havel, were tried for subversion and sentenced to prison in terms of up to five years. Repression of Vons and Charter 77 members continued through the 1980s. Despite this and unrelenting harassment, arrests, and other such treatment, the groups continued to issue reports on the government's violations of human rights. Until the, Vel until the Velvet Revolution, Charter 77 had approximately 1,900 signatories. Charter 77 ultimately only ever had limited influence under the dictatorship because they really didn't have a way of spreading their message beyond underground leaflets and things like that. So most people actually only knew of the group because of the government's campaign against it. So in a way, it's kind of funny because the government wanted to quash a thing and ended up making people more aware of it by wanting to quash it. Yeah, I think there's, it's called the Streisand effect. Yeah, it's pretty funny. But during the 1980s, as many of the Eastern Bloc regimes weakened, Charter 77 saw an opportunity to get more involved in organizing opposition against the regime in power. They were heavily involved in the Velvet Revolution itself, with members of the group negotiating the smooth transfer of political power from dictatorship to democracy. Many of the members would go on to hold political office to mixed results. Um, <laughs> in 1992, there was an attempt to make the group the focal point of an all-encompassing party, but that attempt failed and the organization officially dissolved. So there was actually recently a meeting of some of the original members to talk about the, the charter and sort of their impact on what happened. But it's kind of interesting because they're like a little blip on the map, but also had a really big, a few of their members had really big sway. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, they were heavily involved in the revolution itself, which we're actually finally arriving at. Um, so ultimately, the immediate impetus for the revolution came from developments in the neighboring Eastern Bloc countries, especially the wall. But uh, since August of that year, the West German embassy in Prague had been occupied by East Germans who were demanding exile to West Germany. And it, because what they would do is they would take a train from East Germany to Prague, camp out at the embassy, <laughs> force or demand their way um, and demand their way to West Germany. But in the, days of following, in, the, in the days following November 3rd, thousands of East Germans left Prague by train to West Germany. The fall of the wall a few days later eventually just eliminated the need for the detour, so that was no longer really a problem, but the, the tension had been there for a long time before the actual revolution. So by November 16th, things had kind of reached more of a, a boiling point because many of these Eastern Bloc countries had continued to shed their authoritarian rulers and citizens of Czechoslovakia were paying attention. They noticed. It's hard not to. Uh, even in the Soviet Union, there was actually support for a change in the ruling elite of Czechoslovakia, but a complete overthrow of communism wasn't really what they had in mind. But it's what happened. <laughs> 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 On November 16th, the eve of International Students' Day, Slovak high school and university students organized a peaceful demonstration in the center of Bratislava, which is the capital of Slovakia, in case none of you knew that. Uh, the Communist Party of Slovakia had expected trouble, and the mere fact that the demonstration was organized was viewed as a problem by the party. Which makes sense. They weren't really fond of demonstrations. Uh, armed forces were put on alert in advance, but in the end, the students moved through the city peacefully and sent a delegation to the Slovak Ministry of Education to discuss their demands. In the meantime, new movements led by Václav Havel surfaced, invoking the idea of a united society where the state would politically restructure. The Socialist Union of Youth, a proxy of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, organized a mass demonstration on November 17th to commemorate International Students' Day and the 50th anniversary of the murder of student Jan Opletal by the Nazis. 
Most members of the SSM were privately opposed to communist leadership, but were afraid of speaking for fear of persecution. Uh, as Sorry, SSM is the Soviet Union of... Or Socialist Union of Youth, sorry. Yeah, they were privately opposed to communist leadership, but they were unafraid of speak. They were afraid of speaking for fear of persecution, which makes sense. The demonstration gave average students an opportunity to join others and express their opinions. By about 4 p.m., 15,000 people joined the demonstration. They walked, per the strategy of their founders, to check poet Carol Heineck Machto's grave, and at the end of the march, continued to the center of Prague, carrying banners and chanting anti-communist slogans. So. It's kind of ironic that an official communist protest turned into an anti-communist protest by the end of it. <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah. By 7.30, the demonstrators were stopped by a cordon of riot police at Ndroni Street. They blocked all escape routes and attacked the students. Once all of the protest dispersed, protesters dispersed, a participant, actually a secret police agent, lay motionless in the street. He was not injured or pretending to be dead, but was overcome by emotion. So he was like so overcome by emotion he physically couldn't move. And was motionless and basically unresponsive. Um, police carried his body away. But people saw that and thought that he was hurt or dead. And so the atmosphere was ultimately really f- full of fear and hopelessness. And the motionless man being carried away helped give birth to a hoax about a student being dead. And the story made its way to a correspondent at Radio Free Europe, which then made it on the radio. It actually mobilized the people and ultimately triggered the revolution. So, um... <laughs> Rumors, folks. That's what they'll do. Uh, That same evening, students and theater actors agreed to go on strike. As of November 18th, theater is only open to serve as a public space for public discussion, or serve as a space for public discussion. There was no performances. Everyone was on strike. Students began to also strike, starting with the students at the Academy of the Performing Arts in Prague. Instead of going on stage, actors read a proclamation by the students and artists to the audience calling for a general strike on November 27th. Homemade posters and proclamations were made due to heavy media restrictions, like I said, and, you know, communism is a buzzkill. Uh, This was the only way to distribute their materials and their message. Radio Free Europe reported that a student was killed by the police during the previous day's demonstrations. And, like I said, the report was false, but it amped up the crisis, as it will, and persuaded a lot of citizens who were sitting on the proverbial fence to overcome their fear and join the protest. So, in a way, like, it's kind of shitty that a fake news story actually sparked this but uh, it did so on november 19th the strike spread to bratislava uh, Brno, and ostrava and other towns also went on strike so it made it made it to slovakia outside of prague as well uh, members of a civic initiative met with the prime minister who told them twice that he was prohibited from resigning his post and that change requires mass demonstrations like in east germany so it needs like at least two hundred and fifty thousand people or no one's going to care He asked them to keep the number of quote-unquote casualties during the expected change at a minimum. So he wasn't an idiot. He saw what was happening. He knew. But he couldn't really do anything about it or do any of the things that they wanted him to do. Uh, About 500 Slovak artists, scientists, and leaders met at the Art Forum in Bratislava at 5 p.m. They denounced the attack against the students in Prague on November 17th and formed Public Against Violence, which would become a leading force behind the opposition movement in Slovakia. Actors and members of the audience in a Prague theater, together with Havel and other Charter 77 dissidents, established the Civic Forum, which was an equivalent to People Against Violence. It's just the Czech counterpart, basically. They called for the dismissal of top officials responsible for violence and an independent investigation of the incident and the release of all political prisoners. College students went on strike, and on television, the government called for peace and a return to the city's normal business. That did not happen. 
Um, an interview with the student who had been allegedly killed was broadcast to persuade people that no one died, but the quality of the re- recording was really bad, and the rumors continued. So basically, like, the government's like, hey, see, it's the student that you all thought was dead. Look, he's alive. But the video was so shitty, everyone's like, nope. <laughs> Probably not. They lie. For once, they were telling the truth, and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, it took a few more days to confirm for sure that no one was killed, but by then, this thing had gone had gained too much momentum to really well, stop. We're already it. here, so... Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, well... <laughs> Why stop now? Yeah. At the end of the day, I don't really think that the revolution was about that student being killed or not killed. So, anyways, uh, on the 20th of November, students and theaters went on official permanent strike. Civic Forum representatives negotiated unofficially with Adamek without Havel. Uh, Adamek was the prime minister at the time. And Adamek was sympathetic to the student demands, but he was outvoted later in a special cabinet meeting and the government in an official statement made no concessions. Unsurprising. Also, it's important to note here too, like when I'm talking about students, it isn't, students traditionally have actually held a lot of power, especially in Europe, like student unions in Europe actually carry a lot of political weight. They don't really seem to in North America, but they really do in Europe. And so it's important, it's a really big deal when students go on strike in your in in most places that is actually a really big deal doesn't seem like it but it is civic forum added a demand they added the abolition of the ruling position of the communist party from the constitution non-communist newspapers published information that contradicted the communist interpretation of that or of all of this actually um the first mass demonstration in prague about a hundred thousand people and the first demonstrations in bratislava occurred on the 20th And on the 21st, the first official meeting of the Civic Forum with the Prime Minister took place. The Prime Minister personally agreed to guarantee that no violence would be used against the people. However, he would, quote, protect socialism, about which no discussion is possible. An organized mass demonstration took place in Wenceslas Square in central Prague, and a mass demonstration erupted in Bratislava. Cardinal Frantisek Tomasek, the Roman Catholic premate of the Bohemian lands, declared his support for the students and issued a declaration criticizing the government's policies. And this is a really big deal because the Catholic Church is huge there. For the first time during the Velvet Revolution, the quote, or quote unquote, radical demand to abolish the article of the Constitution establishing the leading role of the Communist Party was expressed by Lubomir Fildek at a meeting of public against violence. And I said quote unquote radical because it's not really that radical, <laughs> uh, but I guess was. On November 22nd, Civic Forum announced a two-hour general strike for Monday, November 27th. The first live reports from the demonstration in Wenceslas Square appeared on federal te- television and were quickly cut off after one of the participants denounced the present government in favor of Alexander Dubček. Striking students forced the representatives of the Slovak government and the Communist Party of Slovakia to participate in a dialogue in which the official representatives were immediately put on the defensive. Employees of the Slovak section of the federal television required the leaders of the federal television to provide true information on the events in the country, otherwise they would initiate a strike. Uncensored live reports from demonstrations in Bratislava began immediately. (laughs) I guess they figured having information on TV is better than having no TV at all. (laughs) (laughs) On November 23rd, the evening news showed factory workers heckling Miroslav Stepan, the Prague communist secretary. The military and military... Ministry of Defense prepared for actions against the opposition, but immediately after that, the Minister of Defense delivered a TV address announcing that the army would never undertake action against the people and and called for an end to the demonstrations. 
you know, like, we would never fire on you, but, like, you really need to stop this. It's, you know, it's, yeah. your, it's your fault that you're doing this, I imagine, is the tone that that was delivered with. On November 24th, everyone resigned, basically, uh, in the government, including general, including the general secretary. Federal TV finally showed pictures from November 17th for the first time and presented the first tele- television address of ha- Havel, dealing mostly with the planned general strike. Czechoslovak TV and radio announced that they would join the general strike shortly thereafter, and a discussion with representatives of the opposition was broadcast by the Slovak division of federal TV. It was the first free discussion on Czechoslovak TV since its inception. As a result, the editorial staff of Slovak newspapers also started to join the opposition. (laughs) Really just snowballed at this point. (laughs) On November 25th, the communist leadership held a press conference, including Miroslav Stepan, while excluding Ladislav Adamek, but did not address the demands of the demonstrators, because... You know, why would they do that? Later that day, Stepan resigned as Prague secretary, which makes sense. It's probably just easier at that point. <laughs> just fuck it, him out. <laughs> the number of participants in the regular anti-government demonstration in Prague, Letna, reached an estimated 800,000 people. Demonstrations in Bratislava peaked at around 100,000 participants, which is a lot less, <laughs> admittedly, but still. Finally, on November 27th, the general strike took place throughout the country between 12 p.m. and 2 p.m., supported by a reported 75% of the population. The Ministry of Culture released released anti-communist literature for public checkouts and libraries, effectively ending decades of censorship. Yeah, they're like, (laughs) all right, fuck it, it's over. (laughs) Well, you know... Release the floodgates. (laughs) You know you're fucked when the Minister of Culture... Yeah, he's like, open the floodgates. Yeah. (laughs) Um, banned books for days. (laughs) Um, Civic, oh God. Civic Forum demonstrated its ability to to disrupt the political order and thereby establish itself as the legitimate voice of the nation in negotiations with the state. Two days later, the Federal Assembly deleted the provision in the Constitution referring to the leading role of the Communist Party, officially ending the communist rule in Czechoslovakia. Later on December 10th, President Gustav Hushak swore in the first government in 41 years that was not dominated by the Communist Party. He resigned pretty shortly after that. <laughs> but anyway, the victory of the revolution was ultimately topped off by the election of rebel playwright and human rights activist Havel as president of Czechoslovakia on the 29th of December of 1989. Within weeks, Havel had negotiated the removal of all Soviet troops from Czechoslovakia, and per the agreement, the Soviet well, Russian troops departed within months. Free elections held in June 1990 legitimized this government and set the stage for addressing the remnants of the Communist Party's power and legacy of the communist period. The main threat to the political stability of, this, of Czechoslovakia and their shift to democracy appeared likely to come from ethnic conflicts between Czechs and Slovaks, which resurfaced in the post-communist period, but there was a general consensus to move forward at moved toward a market economy, so in early 1990, the president and his top economic advisors decided to liberalize prices, push demonopolization, and privatize the economy. The end of communism meant the end of lifelong employment and a subsequent increase in unemployment. So to combat this, the government implemented unemployment benefits and a minimum wage, which, you know, most decent countries have, at least. Uh, The outcome of the transition to democracy in a market economy largely would depend on the extent which developments outside the country helped or hurt that process. And um, all of these countries were ultimately in that position when they transitioned from a fixed economy to a market economy. It was not very smooth in most cases. 
the 90s were really rough for a lot of places. The, re the reason the, the, the revolution's called the Velvet Revolution is because it was ultimately a smooth revolution. There was no violence. So it was, the term was coined by a lady named Rita Klimova, and she was the English translator for the dissidents. And she also later became uh, the ambassador to the United States. They, it was mostly used to discuss the revolution outside of Czechoslovakia, but it was actually used inside as well. The Slovakia used the term gentle revolution after 1993, which is actually the term they used from the beginning, but the Czech Republic still continues to refer to it as the Velvet Revolution. But basically the idea is that the revolution went really smoothly. It was like pretty soft landing for everyone. No one got hurt. It wasn't, you know, no one got shot. <laughs> yeah. Velvet revolutions, that's better than the gentle revolution. I agree. Revolution. I agree. Sounds sexy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The sexy revolution. The sexy revolution. Okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh boy. Yeah. That that's gonna be the name of when the bunnies finally overthrow the the Playboy owner. <laughs> the sexy revolution. The sexy revolution. That's what it's gonna be. Anyway, what am I like? My the, the I used this in the uh, the trailer for our for the season, but. It's during the Velvet Revolution, Dubček became a huge figure again, and he's yeah. like actually out there helping. And there's a video of him out on a balcony looking at the crowd. I think it's Prague, but it could be Bratislava as well. Yeah. And he sees the crowd, and he just has this like, you can just see how proud and happy he is of his people. And he hugs, the, he, he gestures to the crowd that he's hugging them. And it, it's strange to say this, but it's actually quite adorable to watch this because you just see how goddamn happy he is <laughs> he's just so fucking happy so basically yeah communism is done in Czechoslovakia they just basically have to leave yeah so in December 1989 Huzek who surprisingly was still in charge <laughs> at this point established a coalition government and set about ending the communist regime Within a day, this was completed, and once it was formally done, he resigned as president. On December 29th, Havel was elected president by a unanimous vote in the reformed Federal Assembly. One of his first acts as president was to call for the first free elections in Czechoslovak history since 1946. A new constitution was signed on April 23rd, 1990, establishing the Czech and Slovak Federative Republic or the CSFR, which is definitely not that great of a name. <laughs> Doesn't roll off the tongue. No. The elections saw Havel's civic form winning a plurality of 68 seats, while the KSC made second place with 23. Civic form entered a coalition with the Liberal Public Against Violence Party and several other minor parties, only refusing to work with the KSC, unsurprisingly and the newly formed right-wing Slovak National Party, which ironically is now in the coalition government currently run, run, ruling Czechoslovakia at this moment. One of the major debates in writing the constitution was the of the federation was the name itself, which is quite, fun. apparently this caused quite a stir, because <laughs> what do we name the country? While the formal name was the Czech and Slovak Federative Republic, there is disagreement over the Czech presidents over Slovak. 
One suggestion I actually found was the name in Czechia would be the Czech and Slovak FR, and then the and then Slovak and Czech FR in Slovakia. However, this was never adopted and remained unresolved up in, uh, by the time the federation decided to dissolve. So the dissolution of the Czech of Czechoslovakia is also really said to be velvety uh, because it also occurred with no violence. Czechoslovakia is the only former socialist state to have an entirely peaceful breakup. (laughs) (laughs) So, there we go. The separation was caused by a few different things. The main debates kind of focused on whether or not it was actually, you know, inevitable, but whether or not it occurred in contrast to, or like because of the Velvet Revolution, but yeah. By 1991, a lot of it was actually economic too. By 1991, the Czech Republic's GDP per capita was 20% higher than Slovakia's. Transfer payments from the Czech budget to Slovakia, which had been the rule in the past, were stopped in 1991. Uh, Many Czechs and Slovaks desired the continued existence of a federal Czechoslovakia, but some major Slovak parties in particular advocated a looser form of coexistence. And the Slovak National Party started kind of pushing for complete independence and sovereignty. So in the coming years, political parties re-emerged, but Czech parties had very little presence in Slovakia and vice versa, so it was ultimately sort of divided anyways. In order to have a functioning state, the government demanded continued control from Prague, while Slovaks continued to ask for decentralization. So there was kind of a disjointed, you know, they, they wanted, they didn't mind being together, but they wanted it to be less centralized for Slovakia to have more power, but it's kind of hard to decentralize a government. And yeah, it was kind of messy. So in 1992, the Czech Republic elected Václav Klaus and others who demanded either an even tighter federation or two independent states. Basically, it was going to go either way. Either they were going to really double down and, like, we're going to be the most together of federations, or we're not. We're going to be the opposite. We're going to be two states. Vladimir Mechiar, oh God, sorry, sir, (laughs) and other leading Slovak politicians of the day wanted a kind of federation. The two sides opened frequent and intense negotiations in June. And on July 17th, the Slovak parliament agreed to adopt the Declaration of Independence of the Slovak Nation. Six days later, Klaus and Metiar agreed to dissolve Czechoslovakia at a meeting in Bratislava. Czechoslovak President Vlachov Havel resigned rather than oversee the dissolution which he had opposed. In September 1992, in an opinion poll, only 37% of Slovaks and 36% of Czechs favored the dissolution. The goal of negotiations switched to achieving a peaceful division. Like we said, no one hated each other, they just knew this wasn't really going to work. It's either like, we double down and make this really great, or we just split up and they chose splitting up because it was probably the more viable option anyways i think all of them kind of saw that doubling down probably wasn't gonna work (laughs) um usually doesn't in these types of things the analogy continues you know having kids to stay you know do it for the staying together for the kids doesn't really work (laughs) no so yeah on november 13th the federal assembly passed constitution act 541 which settled the division of property between the czech lands and slovakia with constitution act 542 Passed on November 25th, they agreed to the dissolution of Czechoslovakia as of December 31st, 1992. The separation, like I said, occurred without violence and was velvety smooth. I just like saying that. Um, <laughs> uh, it's pretty fun. Yeah. That's the Velvet Revolution. It's pretty much it. Yeah. It is interesting, kind of like the debate about whether or not people think it was like inevitable or not. Well, I love that the main... <laughs> I love the main argument prior to the dissolution was, what do we name the country? (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, like, so it's interesting because the main, so the people who kind of argue that this was inevitable to split up the countries were really pointing back to, like, as far as the Austro-Hungarian Empire as to, like, how different these countries are, mm. like, how deep the ethnic differences actually really are between Czechs and Slovaks and that it was never going to work forever. But then there's people who basically are arguing that it's only really the events between 89 and 92 that actually really spurred it. Kind of, you know, everyone's feeling that nationalist charge as these all the republics are splitting off and gaining their own sovereignty i guess is the word i'm looking for i feel like i don't know interesting i haven't really thought too much about that part to be honest with you but yeah anywho that's it that was the thing that chickens back yeah i guess we could talk about it what's interesting is today the czech republic is in a coalition government the main party is called Anno. And it's he's in a coalition with the Social Democrats. And the party that is supplying them confidence and supply is the Communist Party. Hmm. So it is the first time that the Communist Party has had some government influence since the Velvet Revolution. I don't I think they're I wanna say they're a bit more tame <laughs> than the previous Communist Party, but Slovakia on the other hand don't know too much. Yeah, I don't. To be, I I know someone from there. I don't really know anything else. So you're though. the expert. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know uh, know much else about. Know much else about that. So that's that's uh, the end of Czechoslovakia. I mean, they're still, as far as I know, they're still pretty strong, in a sense. Yeah, uh, I hear Prague is beautiful. I hear Slovakia is beautiful. Yeah, I have some, I mean, like I said, I have some friends from there. And I have some friends who've been there. It's on my list of my next places to try and go to. Go to the Czech Republic. Also, apparently Bohemia has a lot of those castles that you would imagine in a fantasy film. I mean, it was a very, in medieval times especially, it was a very historically important region. So, yeah. there's yeah. that. I'd love to go. I think it'd be good. Yeah. See Prague. There's so many things I want to see. See Bratislava. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's it. That's, that's what it is today. Yeah. That's how it is. Um, I do have a fact. Hmm. Uh, the, the tiny country of San Marino, which is completely surrounded by Italy, mm-hmm. is a tiny country. And it basically, it's, it's the oldest republic in the long, the oldest surviving republic in the world and it is the also the only western country to have had a communist party democratically elected hmm. and interestingly enough they kept democracy and they were actually voted out in 1957 hmm. and they accepted it i don't really have any fun facts but it is the 15th anniversary of the malice at the palace which was the oh my god when ron artest went yep. fucking crazy no, or sorry no. meadow world peace yeah when the uh well to be fair a fan threw Diet Coke at him. Like, he went crazy, though. The fans were like, what's not really like... T- I, I read a story about it today, actually. It was really interesting. Because um, they talked to the commissioner, the, former, the, the commissioner at the time of the NBA. And he talked about how, like, that really set up, like, the, this, di- this uh, understanding of, like, you know, it's also on fans to not ruin the experience, too. It was really, it was just really interesting because it was like a, you know, 15 years since the malice of the palace, like what's changed in the NBA, but yeah. So 15, uh, 15, 15th anniversary of. 
Didn't our test get like one of the longest? I think he got, he got like a 70, one of the longest. He got span. the longest suspension. He, it was a 73 game suspension. Oh my God. Um, there was a lot of fines. What's actually the most impressive thing about the Malice of the Palace, though, is that nobody was seriously injured. Like, no really? one. Players, fans, no one. Wow. Yeah. So, sports history fact for you. Yeah. That's, that's Lindsay's specialty is sports. Kind of. Well, yeah. She's it's interested my, in sports. interest in <laughs> Okay. Let's wrap this up. Yeah, let's let's get going. Um, so next week, we're actually our next week. God, I don't know why I keep doing that. We're not a weekly podcast. I know. Uh, next episode One is day. we're finally going to do the Pol- Polish Solidarity Movement. And after that, uh, the final episode, we might as well reveal the final episode of this year. Yeah. Is going to be on the Romanian Revolution. And is actually going to be our Christmas episode. <laughs> it's gonna, I have it scheduled to release on the December 23rd. You're going to find out it's not very Christmassy at all. But the entire revolution happened within around Christmas time. And it was also Romania was the only country in Eastern Europe to have violently overthrown its communist government. Hmm. And it was pretty violent. But you'll but we'll wait. For that, Solidarity, and then Romanian Revolution, and then we're on a break, because Christmas. it's fucking Christmas. It's gonna be a little busy. Yeah, we're both gonna be pretty busy. I'm sure everyone else is gonna be busy, too. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. More keep, Kevin content coming your way. Keep sharing our episodes to people who might be interested, and yeah, not much else going on. This is, uh, that's it. I think so let's uh, I guess we'll sign off I'm Jonah I'm Lindsay thank you guys so much have a good week